Well, today we begin a new series in 1 John. I've been looking forward to this for a while, excited about this. So we're going to walk through this letter uh, now until uh, the end of this year. And as we begin today, the title of our series is The Father Heart uh, of God. If you can think of all the metaphors or images that you could um, give to describe or to picture God, um, definitely you would give the idea of Father. And God uses that as an image that he chose to reveal himself. A father is one of the most affectionate and all-encompassing images that we could give to him. Uh, you think about a father. A father is supposed to bring us to life. It's supposed to welcome us into a family. A father provides for our needs. A father protects us from harm. A father gives us identity. It, father teaches us wisdom. We see that especially in Proverbs. A father corrects us when we wander away. A father comforts us when we grieve. A father is to ensure uh, that life includes at times some silliness, right, and some fun. I think Jesus showed a little bit of that when he was with some children. When the disciples said, shoo them away, Jesus welcomed them. Um, When it comes to Jesus, the old adage rings true, like father, like son. And this is what Jesus meant in John 14, verse 9, when he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so like a mirror that perfectly reflects, Jesus shows the Father's heart. And so echoing Jesus, 1 John says that in eternity past, Jesus was with the Father. We're going to read about that this morning. And he came to reveal to us that our fellowship is with the Father. And so the Father heart of God is perfectly seen in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, those who walk with Jesus, they become more and more like the Father. And that is precisely what happened to a young man by the name of John, the Apostle John. The first time we see John is when he is probably um, in his maybe early 20s, maybe very late teens, and he is doing what? He's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's fishing. He's fishing with his brother. He's fishing with his dad. And most likely, James and John grew up under the law. And back then, back in the first century, just like today, young boys aspire to be like uh, uh, the next LeBron James or to aspire to be the next uh, J.J. Watt or or just fill in the blank, Aaron Judge, you you name it. Um, Back then, young boys used to want to be like rabbis. They would aspire to be like the biggest, coolest, maybe not the coolest, but the biggest uh, rabbi at the time who was the wisest and, and could, uh, it was just maybe well-known. They, they wanted to have that rabbi say, hey, you know what, why don't you come and follow me? And so they would long to be chosen by rabbi, but, but many boys would be sent home at the age of around 15 or so. They'd be sent back home to go and participate in the family business. And no doubt with the likes of, uh, of Peter, the likes of John and, and James, these guys had that. And so James and John, they're out fishing. They're doing the family business. That's what they had. And so here they are with their dad. And you remember what happened that day? Jesus comes up 
And he says, hey, listen, come and join me. Jesus says to these guys who probably were rejected by a rabbi who said, no, 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 you don't make the cut with me. But Jesus says, come on, join me and follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. You remember what John did? He immediately dropped his nets. He, he left his dad and he went and he followed Jesus. And so when you look at John and his life throughout the Gospels, as we recorded, there seems to be no one who knew Jesus better than John. No one who knew him quite like John did. And we have four writings of John in our New Testament, his gospel account. Then we have a first letter, a second letter, and a third letter. I used to love when I would uh, go through the New Testament still today, when you get to first, second, and third John, you feel like, man, I'm making some ground, right? Because you can just fly through these books, right? The second or third John, they're, they're small. They're like, oh, this is great. That's only my reading today? That's awesome. Um, but first John was written while John was in Ephesus, around A.D. 80 or so, to second and third generation Christians. And by now, he's an older man, almost 50 years maybe removed from the death and the res resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's writing now to young and new Christians primarily. And as we read his letter, he, the tone of the letter is definitely a fatherly one. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he, he writes in this way. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children. In verse uh, 12 of the same chapter, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And then in verse 18 of that very chapter, he says, children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. And so he speaks to these, these young, new Christians, in this very fatherly, family tone. And so through John's letter, the Holy Spirit is revealing the Father heart of God, we see even in verses like that, as the Father wants us to know Him. And the Father wants to have a relationship with us, and He wants us to know the truth about His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's where we begin today. That's where John begins. Because everything hinges on Jesus. How you see Jesus, what you do with Jesus, is everything. It's everything. And so look what John says, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we're going to only go through four verses this morning, but look what he says in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so the central theme here, if you were to step back and, and, and read through this a few times, you would notice that the central theme here in the beginning is the word of life, the life. And so let's look at this theme here, if we could, the word. What's that word, the word, right? It's the word logos. If you go back to the Greek language, it, it means speech or it means something spoken by a living Voice And so the word of life, this idea here, is the message about life, namely the message about the gospel. And in chapter 1 of, of John's gospel, which parallels, which is amazing, the first two verses of this letter parallel really chapter 1 of John through verse 1 through 18. And so as you think about John's gospel, he speaks of the logos. He speaks of the word, and who does he refer to the word as? He says, Jesus is 
the Word. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then down in verse 14 of that gospel, he will say, and the Word became flesh. We know the Word to be Jesus. And so the central theme in these first few verses is Jesus. And throughout this letter, the theme is Jesus. In fact, the entire Word of God, the theme is Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And so it's significant how we see him, how we view him, and what we believe to be true about him. In fact, as John says in this very letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 through 12, he says, the testimony is this, that God has given eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so the word of life is the person of Jesus Christ. The word of life gives life, and that's what Jesus came to do. And so what does John say more about the word of life in this text? As this is the theme, Jesus is the theme. What does it say about him? I think the first thing it says is Jesus is eternal. And look at the first part of verse one. It says, what was from the beginning? Meaning that Jesus was there in creation. When creation begins, he is there. In fact, he's already been there. Jesus is eternal. He had no beginning. He had no end. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. He's not part of creation. He is the source of creation. And so all life comes from him. In fact, look with me, if you would, at John 1 on the screen. It tells us in the first five verses, in the beginning was what? The Word. That logos, and the word was with God. The word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him, speaking about Jesus again, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So there will be those who do not comprehend the truth about Jesus being God, being eternal. And yet, those who the light shines on, who God, through his grace, through his sovereign grace, shines on us and reveals to us that yes, Jesus is eternal, that he is God. John also says in this first couple of verses, in verse two, that the eternal life which was with the Father um, And so here he says that Jesus was with the Father. He was with the Father. He existed eternally with the Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus says when he prays in John 17, verse 5, praying to the Father, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Meaning, Father, I existed before in great glory. Before I came down and took on human flesh, Lord, I want to know that glory again and glorify me with yourself just as you did before the world was. And so Jesus was with the Father. He was with the Father. And so John wants us to see this simple truth this morning that the word of life is God. He is God. The second thing that he wants us to see about the word of life is that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is man. And John says about Jesus, the word of life, and it's interesting, look at verse one, he says, what was from the beginning, what we 
have heard. Interesting, John, he uses the pronoun we. So he's not just saying here what, what I have observed about Jesus, but he's saying what we have observed. Now, John most likely is the only one who is pinning this letter. It's not like a group project or anything like that. It's, it's John writing, but he includes in his testimony the idea that there is a group of us, there is a community of us, there is a fellowship of us who has experienced an eyewitness account of Jesus. And so he represents not just himself here, but those eyewitnesses. And he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes. We have looked at and touched him with our hands. And he was manifested. And so this speaks no doubt of what? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God became man. Taking on human Flesh. Through the virgin birth that we have sung about this morning, Jesus, the word of life, became man, taking on human nature simultaneously along with his divine nature being both God and man. And what John says this morning is, is this. And he says, hey, this isn't some theory. This isn't some pie in the sky, just something we grabbed and something we just put together along with other beliefs. No, this is something that is rooted in history as something that me, John says, along with others, have heard. We've heard. We've heard Jesus speak. We've heard him teach. We've heard it. Not only have we heard it, but we've seen it with our eyes. We've seen Jesus heal. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen Jesus raise the dead. We've seen it. I mean, even John knew personally the physical touch of Jesus. You remember at the Lord's table as they're laying there, or sitting there, and Jesus leans over, right? And just the physical touch. I mean, he even touched Jesus. So, so there is this interaction, this experience with Jesus and who he is. And John says, I, I want you to know this, that, that Jesus touched all the senses of me and the eyewitnesses. And he was and is God in the flesh. Now as we share that this morning, as we look at that, this has become a stumbling block, no doubt, for many throughout the ages. And John speaks of that. In fact, if you look at 2 John verse 7, it's on the screen. Listen to what John says. There's some underlining reasons John is speaking to this in the church. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And this is the deceiver. This is the antichrist. And so John is concerned, it seems, in his letter, the reason for his writing for those in the church. With those who would say that, hey, listen, we're, we're improving Christianity with this teaching or with these thoughts. Not destroying it, not sinking to ruin it, but to make it better. Yes, okay, we, we hold this as an essential truth, but why do we? Why, why do we need to? And so there will be those who come in and, and add teaching or change the teaching about who Jesus is, that which is essential and not make it essential any more. And that's what John was addressing in his day. 
And so in John's day, if you think about what was going on, what was present? Why would he say this? Why would he address this to those in the churches? I think real simply, you've got at least three things going on and probably more of false teachers that he will address. One group was the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that the spiritual and material were sharply distinguished. They were literally separated. And so the the idea of, of God becoming a man, not a chance. Not a chance. It does not hold view. It, it does not hold with them to be a view that they could hold on to. There was docetism. You may be able to say that differently. That's how I say it, docetism, which was belief that Jesus' body was not real, that he only appeared to have a physical body. That's why John brings up what he does. He says, listen, I've heard him. I've not only heard him, I've seen him with my own eyes. And not only that, I have physically come in contact with him. And he's real. He's real. He is real. And then there was this one guy named Serenthus, a prominent Gnostic who greatly opposed John. And he taught this. He taught that Jesus was only a man And that the divine Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism and left him before the crucifixion. What's interesting about this teaching, you will find this today. All these thoughts. This last one, you'll find it even in the likes of of Mormonism and other lines of teaching. I believe even some of these things you may even find in the likes of a Rob Bell, some other people who have drifted away from the essential truths of Scripture. And so don't, don't think for one minute, oh, okay, this is what they dealt with in the first century. No, these things are very prominent today. These thoughts are in books all over the place. And so we must be on guard what we read, what we put before ourselves. And about this guy, Serenthus, John so greatly opposed him that one day, in fact, his disciple, John's disciple, Polycarp, wrote about John and said John was heading to the public bath one day in the city. And as he was going there, he heard that Serenthus was in the public bath already. And so John decided, I'm not going in, and I will leave and go a different way. John opposed Serenthus' teaching so much that he didn't want to have anything, anyone to even think that he was associated with the idea that Jesus was not God in the flesh. That's how serious John was about this teaching. And so John does not want those in the church to drift away into such belief or thinking about Jesus. This is why he's so passionate about the truth of Jesus, both being God and man. It matters. And so for him, for John, the incarnation of God becoming flesh, Jesus becoming a man, is the test of spiritual authenticity, of spiritual realness. It truly is the truth that comes from God. And the only truth that we can tell, that we can hold up and say, hey, listen, this is the test of spiritual authenticity. So what does John say about that? I want you to look on the screen. First John 4 Verses 1 through 3, listen to what Jesus, uh, John said. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so we've seen what he's speaking of, the false prophets, what they believed. 
By this, though, you know the Spirit of God. So here's the test. Every spirit that confessed that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. Okay, so it's the idea that he has come from God. He has been with the Father. He's come from God. He's been sent from God. He's taken on, willingly, human flesh. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. So John says that's the test. That's the test of spiritual authenticity, of what's real, of what's reality, of what's reality. The stumbling block over this truth about Jesus being God and man is that if this is true, can we sit back and think about this for a second? If this is true, that God is man, then here's the deal, that Jesus is God and man. Here's the stumbling block for people today. If this is true, every person in the world must obey this man, if that's true. Everything he says is law, if this is true. Everything he did was perfect. He was a universal authority over everything, and his works and words are brought to us through his inspired word. Therefore, they have authority over us and any other book ever written. And so, this is a stumbling block for some. This is a stumbling block when God becomes man, because guess what? He strips away every idea that man could be God. And even though if you walked up to somebody and said, listen, do you want to be a God? They'd be like, what? But in thought and in theory and thinking and the way they live their life, the idea is there. The idea is there. I mean, that's what the enemy, that's what Lucifer, that's, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be his own God. And really, that's what the struggle is with, with all of us. We want to be our own God. Denying self is not something we love and embrace. And so if this is true, it strips away the idea that we could be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what Jesus says. We can no longer be self-sufficient if this is true. We must come to him because if so, we are sick in sin, needing to be healed. And so we can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find this life. Because guess what? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so when God becomes man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And even though we may not admit it outright, we struggle with that. Many are willing to believe in Christ if if, and this is where kind of this docetism comes in in a different way, is we're willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. And so what happens, the rebellious heart does not like this at all. 
And that rebellious heart says, who does Jesus think he is to demand such? And Jesus says back, I'm God. And that's the issue. So Jesus is the word of life that was manifested to us. He's the eternal God who took on flesh. And it's like C.S. Lewis said, either you think he's a flat-out liar or you think he's just a crazy man or you believe he's Lord. And that truth is significant because of what he says next. And so look at these next two verses as we close today. Before we head out, I want you to see this. Look what he says in verse 3. What we have seen... Okay, so, so the truth we just heard is significant because of what he's about to say. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. We make known to you. So, here's the purpose, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the truth of who Jesus is, is essential to what? Well, the first thing this morning is, is essential to having fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And also, he says, the second thing, to share in fellowship with John and these other eyewitnesses, which we would say today, the church, the saints. And so our fellowship with God and the church is based on this significant truth. That's why it's essential. So you can think about this idea of fellowship. Fellowship, um, this word comes from a business term, speaking of partnership. It also has this personal idea of a personal experience of sharing something in common with somebody else, with others. It's the pleasure of being in a group when you see eye to eye on what, what really matters. And so God initiates this with us, to have a partnership with us. Not only with him, but also his son, Jesus, and the gift of such fellowship is because of Jesus. That's why John fourteen six, the next part of that verse Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he says, no man comes to the Father except through me. He is the way to the Father. And so Jesus came to sinners. He offered this fellowship to anyone who would be willing to lose their values, to lose what they once believed and see eye to eye with him. And if you trust in Jesus, you have fellowship with him and also the Father That's what he said. John says this. John says in chapter 2, verse 23 of this writing, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And so fellowship with God only comes through Jesus. John wants us to understand that. Not only that, we have this fellowship with each other. Those who have fellowship with the Father and Son also share in this fellowship, this partnership with one another. And so the basis of John's fellowship with other believers is based on Jesus Christ and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So the shared belief about Jesus is the basis of our Christian fellowship here at the Ridge. But a few questions is, how do we practically apply this? How do we practically apply the idea of this truth and this relationship with God the Father and Son to, to life? What is that? really look at. And just a few thoughts on that of how we can apply this. And this is important because sometimes our fellowship is based on shared experience. And that can be dangerous. Because according to what John says here, it is to be based on shared beliefs. What's essential? Not just shared experiences, but shared beliefs. 
Another way this could practically apply as well is when it comes to dating and marriage. Think about what Paul said. Paul said for us to not be unequally yoked, not to marry an unbeliever. A believer, not to marry an unbeliever. Why? Because there's this deep fellowship and the things that matter most. And it's not possible where we don't share the same understanding and affection for Jesus. That's why it's so important. I think about my kids all the time, that, that, that we, that Annette and I lay out clearly that, hey, listen, when you start looking, right, just even looking for someone who you're attracted to or you think down the road, and, and we've tried to at the dinner table for all these years that talks like this, but now, you know, when they start getting older, it starts getting real, where you start saying, hey, listen, you, you've got to remember what matters most to you, what you believe in, right? And when God brings you one day to one that, hey, listen, do they believe too? And then it's so vital. And so that's where a text like this so comes into play. If we have fellowship with the Father and Son, we have fellowship with the church as well. And so we've got to remember that that's significant. Because that matters most. And if you don't have that with somebody that, that matters most, it gets tough. It gets tough. And so John and the eyewitnesses were not just content with just seeing. They weren't just content with just hearing. But look at what it says next, lastly, in verse 4. He says this, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So think about what John is saying here. We write these things. We're proclaiming these things. Why? So that our joy may be complete. I love this. Because everything we just said about the truth of God, and if Jesus is who he says he is, who John says he is, then that means we've got to submit to him. We've got to obey him. He's Lord. If that is true, I mean, that's when some people are just like, hey, listen, I, I don't, don't want that because, man, I, I want to, be happy. Oh, man, I want to live the way I want to live. And I want. But you read what John writes here. John says, listen, God's not this killjoy. No, he is the giver of joy. If you want to know true joy, John says, hey, listen, know Jesus and experience not only knowing him, but proclaiming him and experience this fellowship with others who share the same belief in the truth that you believe. John says, that's joy. That's joy. And so John, along with these eyewitnesses, want to share in the fullness of joy that comes when one shares in this fellowship along with them in the Father and the Son. And so what is John saying here? Hey, believe this truth and proclaim it. And John says, you will find joy, true joy. Everlasting joy, abundant joy. As we go through this series over the next few weeks, everything is going to hinge on this truth about Jesus as we keep plowing through. But every week, we will be challenged. There will be a challenge. And you think about this fatherly heart of God. When you think about the father heart of God, you think of a father that's not just encouraging, but also challenging as well. Fathers gives us challenge. They challenge us. And that's what John's doing through this letter. And what's the challenge today? If we were to step back and say, okay, what's, what's the challenge? 
I think today simply is to say, what do I believe? What do I believe? Do I believe, as John believes, that Jesus is God, that he's eternal God, that Jesus came in flesh, that he is the God-man, that he is simultaneously God and man at the same time? Do I believe that? And do I believe that he came? And he came and he died for my sins. That he became the substitute. He came and took the place for me. And he's the only one that could do that. And he came willingly. Not because of man. Not because man put him up there. But he became this willing, suffering servant for me. And died for me. And took my place to forgive my sins. That's why he came. That my sins could be forgiven. And he did that because he is God. And he is man. And so do you believe that today? I pray, if you do not, that you would allow the Lord to lead you to that. That you would... Now reject this, that you would say, Lord, I would love to know you. <laughs> this is how we know God, is through his son Jesus. And that you, as he leads you and stirs your heart this morning, that you would believe, that you would believe. We pray.